independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. If it's inspired you and you're able to support this podcast starting at just $1 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. With this being an independent platform, I am looking for more support to be able to continue the show. So thank you so much if you're already a patron. It helps a lot and I really do appreciate it. That's the ironic thing. We actually don't need any more resources. We just need to reallocate what we currently have into things that actually fulfill our needs as humans while enhancing the habitat and spaces around us for the ecosystems that we so desperately depend on. That was Rob Avis, who, along with his wife, Michelle, is the owner and lead instructor at Verge Permaculture, an internationally recognized and award-winning permaculture design company from Calgary, Alberta. Stay tuned as we're about to explore the importance of learning about bioregionality so that we can better support the regeneration of our local ecosystems and divorce our globalized food system from its reliance on fossil fuels, why we need to rebuild community-based self-sufficiency for sustainability and not have to depend on a centralized food system, power system, water supply, and so forth, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I actually started off as a petroleum engineer. Both my wife and I started as petroleum engineers in different companies. And we were the people that would bring the pipelines in, build the facilities, process the natural gas, process the oil into petroleum so that we can drive cars and heat houses. And while I really liked my job and I liked how much I was being paid and I liked the the challenge of the work, I just really felt like I wasn't progressing society as a result of it. And I couldn't really put my finger on it at the time. I couldn't criticize the industry because at the same time, I was also acting as a consumer. I was driving to work and keeping my house heated with natural gas and it gets pretty cold where I live. But I couldn't really wrap my head around what the solution was. And then I started to learn a little bit about peak oil and that really troubled me. And I started bringing these conversations to work and nobody really was interested in having them because it we all tend to vote with our, you know, with regards to where our money is coming from. And so ignoring things like peak oil kind of works when you're working in the industry that it potentially threatens. So 
I did. I see. I didn't really have a solution. In fact, I started to recognize that the story that was being told in Calgary was that there was no alternative to fossil fuels. That was the story, the predominant myth that we were telling ourselves. And it was one day that I was getting ready to take down an enormous amount of forest to bring a pipeline through. And I ended up getting a three minute video in my inbox called Greening the Desert, which is still on YouTube today. And it tells a story of a, a gentleman named Jeff Lawton, who ended up becoming one of my closest friends. And before he became a friend, a mentor and a teacher to me. And it described his journey in the lowest place on earth, the Jordan, Jordan and the Dead Sea Valley, where he turned a hypersaline soils and pretty much a dead space into this self-regenerating ecosystem. And I said, you know, that's that this guy's doing something with his life. And so being an engineer, I took out a calculator. I calculated out how many hours I had left on this earth. The average person lives about 600,000 hours. <laughs> and I, I was like, you know, I got 400,000 hours left on this planet to make a difference. And I don't want to maintain status quo. I also don't want to be the person that criticizes an industry when I use it as a consumer. And so I called my wife up and said, we're leaving. We're going to travel the world. So we went to Denmark. We went to Africa, we went to the US, we went to Mexico, we went to Australia. And everywhere we went, we figured out that different cultures had different mythologies around what was possible and what wasn't. And so while we were in Calgary talking about how the world could not transition off petroleum, Denmark was rapidly in progress towards going to 100% renewable energy. And the more we learned about energy, the more we realized that energy was actually not the big problem. It was not the thing that was going to bring civilization to its knees it was food mm. and that's where we discovered permaculture and where our studies kind of led us to australia and then ultimately to starting verge permaculture where we teach permaculture design and we design resilient homes acreages and farms using that philosophy now because you're the only guest that have an experience working within the fossil fuel industry I want to say that sometimes it can be easy to look at people with jobs in the industry and make snap judgments about who they are and what they believe in. So for you as someone who's worked in the oil fields yourself, what can you tell us about your experience and knowledge of what, what maybe got your other colleagues into that work or ends up keeping them there? Well, given the nature of Alberta, I mean, we have a lot of fossil fuels here and, and it pays really well and just when you have an industry that as profitable as the fossil fuel industry, it kind of eclipses every other industry in in the province. And so before I worked in the fossil fuel industry, I actually worked in the industrial food industry, ironically. We had a cheesecake factory growing up. We would produce 100,000 cakes a day. And so we required milk from confined animal feeding operations and we required canola and all the products that I uh, encourage people not to consume now. Mm -hmm. And growing up, it was really difficult for my dad to actually employ people in that business because it, we were also in Alberta, of, of course. And it's very difficult for an economy like Alberta's economy to diversify when you've got $100,000 jobs to drive a truck. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, who's going to put cherries on a cake or who's going to actually start a grass fed milk operation or whatever when you can go and get $100,000 a year doing a very simple job. And so a lot of people end up in the industry because that's where there's work. Right. And we all have mortgages and cars to pay and kids to raise. And so it's, it's just the predominant industry that exists here. 
Yeah, it sounds like there's definitely a bigger societal issue that we have to address in order to be able to answer this. But based on your experience, do you feel like there is increasingly an awareness among those working in the industry? Maybe people that worked with you previously, you mentioned that people were hesitant to talk about the idea of peak oil, but what are your thoughts on, I guess, people's general awareness of what's happening? So it's a really interesting question because when we came back from all of our travels, we were coming back in a Westphalia van that I had converted to run on vegetable oil. And I remember coming across the border from British Columbia into Alberta and looking at my wife and saying, what are we doing coming back to this province? Like, it's so backwards. And she said, well, our families are here, and so we should probably give it a go. And it's a good thing we did. Because while people were unwilling to have those conversations while we were working with them, what we found was that Alberta is absolutely chock full of what I call in the closet greenies. And so we started attracting executives and professionals and blue collar workers who were thinking of the same things, but didn't feel like they had the venue or the safe space to be able to talk about these issues. Mm. And so I would say there's an incredible amount of awareness, but people are concerned about their jobs and don't necessarily want to be considered a, a heretic. So I think it's good. I mean, it's it, the, the change is happening. And that's one side of the coin. The other side is that it doesn't actually really matter what people in the industry believe, which sounds a little bit negative. But the reality is, is that the world is transitioning away from fossil fuel so rapidly right now. And if you remember back to like less, probably just a little bit more than a decade now when smartphones came out and they were kind of a new thing and now they're ubiquitous, the same thing's happening with electric cars and low energy houses. We are rapidly moving to a 100% electrical economy. And as a result of that, it's going to facilitate the transition to solar and wind and title very, very rapidly. So I feel very optimistic about energy as a whole. I'm not sure where that leaves Alberta. I think we're going to be left in the dust, unfortunately. Mm. Um, so people are going to have to retrain. So you quit the oil and gas industry in 2008 and pivoted to starting Verge Permaculture. And in an introduction to permaculture on your website, you say that even the most gung-ho advocates for going green are realizing that the small, simple steps Curly light bulbs, tankless water heaters, and uh, reusable bags don't even begin to touch the profound challenges we're facing now, not to mention the massive problems coming down the pike, end quote. What did you learn that led you to the revelation that we need deeper solutions beyond perhaps individual steps and also beyond addressing our individual isolated problems? Well, there's a whole suite of, of liabilities that we could talk about over the next 20 episodes if we wanted to, but <laughs> one of the, the big ones that stays top and, and present in my mind, um, there's a few, some of them are more pertinent to my ecosystem, but globally, there's about 10 years of phosphorus left, mineable phosphorus. The primary phosphorus producers on the planet are the United States, China, and Africa, and China and the US have both stopped exporting phosphorus which means there's only really one exporting nation. Now, phosphorus is elemental, and so you can actually cycle it in the ecosystem almost indefinitely. However, the way that we currently grow crops requires the perpetual application of phosphorus. And so 
to translate that into something that somebody could actually understand, like what does peak phosphorus mean? It means famine and starvation. Mm -hmm. It means exponentially increasing costs of food prices, essentially. And it will probably hit developing nations before it'll hit the Western nations, but it's still going to affect everybody. And permaculture as a design philosophy directly addresses that liability because it looks at closed loop systems. So that's one of them. While we are in the middle of a, an energy disruption, there's no guarantee that that we're going to make it to the other side before we start seeing really big repercussions of peak oil and gas. And the States actually is leading the way in terms of shale gas exploitation, which is why there's a glut of energy on the market right now. However, if you look at the financials on all the tight oil and gas, what you'll find is that the cost of that exploiting that resource is going up exponentially. And about 70% of the financial resources that are going into that industry are just going in to maintain status quo. So it's not actually increasing the size of the resource. It's just sucking the fuel out of the ground faster. Mm. So in my climate where it gets to minus 40, I say that in Canada, I live in the place where Fahrenheit and Celsius are friends because minus 40 Celsius is the same as minus 40 Fahrenheit. It's really cold. And so we have to change the way that we build houses because right now we heat our homes with natural gas, which burns at thousands of degrees when really we're only trying to keep spaces to about 72. So heating houses with natural gas is like cutting butter with a chainsaw. It's, it's the hmm. wrong use of fuel for the wrong application. So we have a lot of innovation that's required and we actually know how to do it now, but we, we, we have to go and do it now. So so energy, phosphorus, and then water is probably the last big one. I mean, there's a, like I said, there's a whole basket of them, but the Ogallala aquifer is almost done. And a lot of the major aquifers around the world are almost at the end of their productive capacity. And the Ogallala aquifer probably recommend, or uh, sorry, um, contributes to, you know, 10 to 30% of the global calories um, with the irrigated crops that come off of there. And so once that fossil water is done, then that also leads to famine. And so all these things tend to lead to the same direction. It's, it's, and it doesn't have to be this way. That's the thing. Like it, it sounds really pessimistic and negative, but the solutions are actually very hopeful and positive, but it requires us to have a meaningful dialogue around energy, water, and food mm. and how they all, the nexus between those three things and how important it all is to to make sure that there is a human civilization in, in a couple of decades from now. I believe the United Nations reported that we have globally around 60 years of topsoil left. Do we know what that number looks like in terms of phosphorus? Because this is also the first time that I'm hearing about the concept of peak phosphorus. And I feel like for the large implications that this has for our food system, it definitely should be talked about more if it's so integral to to what we have right now. I mean, the, the stat that I have about soil is interesting. Most farmers are not farming wheat or corn or soy. They're farming soil. Mm. One ton of grain right now erodes close to seven tons of topsoil, So, which is why we have dead zones. And it's pretty dire. You know, it, it doesn't really matter which direction you look at. It just doesn't look very good. Right. And the reality is, and this is the same with, with heating of houses, like we actually know the solution to all these problems. But there's so many vested interests in keeping 
the system running the way that it currently runs that it's difficult to course correct. And I guess it's, it remains to be seen whether or not we have the collective will to basically turn their ship around. I know we have the technical capacity, but um, yeah. it, it's, it's difficult. Well, to address the systemic issues that we face, you say that we need a regenerative solution that rebuilds ecosystems and communities the way that they were supposed to function. We've talked a lot about how our ecosystems have been degraded on the podcast, but what do you think is most important for us to know there? And what does it mean that our communities are also no longer functioning the ways that they're supposed to? Well, I think that the the interesting thing about all the things we just spoke about is they're all large order liabilities. And so the average person can look at those and listen to this podcast and say, well, this is super depressing. What the heck am I going to do as one individual? And it turns out that the solution to these massive liabilities actually exists in the, the decisions that are made on an individual basis. And so that starts right outside your back door. And that's really what permaculture aims to do. And and uh, people tend to confuse permaculture with just gardening, but it's actually the design of sustainable human habitat. And you don't need an engineer or an architect or, a, you know, I'll call it a white collar worker to figure this out for you. You have to figure it out on your own, or at least you, you, you have the ability to figure it out on your own. And you have, you have the ability and are encouraged within this design system to figure it out amongst your community. And when we look at food, energy, and water, a lot of those issues can be directly addressed, at least they can be addressed individually, just using the land base that you have yourself. So you can harvest your own rainwater. If we were legally allowed to, you could process your wastes. So for sure, compost is an accepted kind of waste that we can process. But decentralized sewage systems are starting to become part of the conversation in some cities in North America We've got the ability to grow enormous amounts of food in in the United States, um, if we use that as an example. So I did a, a really quick study once um, because I had this question asked of me by a master's student who was studying urban uh, agriculture systems. And I looked at all the grass in the U.S. because I could the stats are, are available online, very, very fairly easy to find. And it turns out that if we just converted – all of the lawn in the United States to wheat, which we would never do because all the celiacs would probably die. But um, <laughs> but just if we use that as a, a way of counting calories, we could produce enough calories to feed the entire United States a 2000 calorie diet per day for two years off of one crop and forgetting about all the farmland, just growing it on gra- on, on the kind of current lawns. Wow. And largely there'd probably be enough labor more than enough labor in American cities to do that. And the other interesting thing is, is that there's enough fuel used on an annual basis to drive a Hummer 21,000 times around the planet just in managing all of that turf. And that doesn't even talk to the phosphorus, the nitrogen, the potassium, the herbicides, and the pesticides that are sprayed on these lawns, which I can't remember the stats on that right now. It's on my website. And so... There actually is no shortage of fossil fuel. There's no shortage of phosphorus. There's no shortage of potassium. There's no shortage of labor. It's just that we as a society have chosen to allocate these resources into things that are 
useless, mm. <laughs> essentially. And I'm not saying we should get rid of all the lawns. Like, it's great to have kids, to give kids a place to play. And it's great to uh, have these public spaces that we can use. And lawn does does serve a function. But I, there is an enormous amount of it out there that is completely wasteful. And that's the ironic thing. We actually don't need any more resources. We just need to reallocate what we currently have into things that actually fulfill our needs as humans while enhancing the habitat and spaces around us for the ecosystems that we so desperately depend on. Mm. I think there's always the question of, well, how are we going to meet our needs with an increasing population? And certainly population growth is a whole nother conversation to be had. But we're coming up with this question based on the current ways that we're using our resources in degenerative manners rather than regenerative manners. So even with the existing resources that we have, if we were to utilize them more intelligently and more regeneratively, then we can already sustain ourselves based on what we have now. Oh, absolutely. And I don't actually think we have a population issue. I think the population issue that we're facing is one of um, declining population. I think globally we've peaked. There's only a few countries left that are still breeding past replacement, but most of the Western world is now in steep decline. And uh, that's going to pose a whole other set of, of, of issues. There's no shortage of land, there's no shortage of water, and there's no shortage of fuel if we just reallocate it. The I think Joel Salton said this, 50% of the food on, on the fields don't make it to market. 50% of what makes it to the market doesn't make it to the consumer and 50% of what most consumers take home doesn't actually make it into their stomach. So there's inefficiencies within the system. There's misallocation in resources with regards to where we choose to invest all of these resources. Like I said, it, lawn being one example of that. And um, the other thing that's really interesting is our obsession about growing annual crops, corn, soy, wheat, canola, cotton. There was a, a statistic that I read in a book that I didn't that, that I read in the last year or two that basically said if all the land in from North Dakota south to the Gulf of Mexico east to the Mississippi River were switched over back to perennial grasslands, which is what they would have been 400 years ago before Europeans came to North America, the U.S. would be carbon neutral without changing any of its habits overnight. Wow. And not only that, but all that grass would be able to feed enormous amounts of livestock. And uh, one of the big myths that that's kind of exists within the environmental movement right now is that cows are causing climate change. If we look at cows and pastures as a ecosystem together, they're actually carbon sequestration mechanisms. CAFOs, I agree, are complete horrendous and completely horrendous and should not be allowed. But if we look at perennial pastures, what's really interesting about them is that they'll photosynthesize for six to eight months of the year, meaning that they're turning sun and CO2 into sugars and biomass versus wheat might photosynthesize for one month, maybe one and a half months. And so for the rest of the time in that field, that field is now absorbing solar energy in a way that is not being put to productive use. And so we have systematically changed the albedo of the planet, how much energy it absorbs or reflects, because um, we've changed from perennial crops into annual crops. And so ironically, when we look at climate change and all the other liabilities that we just spoke about, all of those liabilities get solved when we start functioning and, and working with 
ecosystems. And in order to do that, we just have to look back at how they've operated for the last 4 billion years. And we can absolutely, as a species, fit within that mix and optimize it. And there's no reason for us to have to leave this planet and try and find other planets to live on. Like we've got more than enough resources right here and and knowledge to be able to use this planet much more effectively than we're currently using it. And why do you think, given this knowledge, that uh, obviously having a more perennial ecosystem is a lot more efficient and sustainable, given the landscapes that we have, why is it that we're stuck with the annuals? Is it because there are subsidies in place that should be removed? Or what are the incentives that are keeping us in, in this current food system? Well, I think you get enormous amounts of yield. And it's easy for one person to manage a whole bunch of machines when you're dealing with one type of crop. Mm. And so we have to ex expand our definition of efficiency and effectiveness. If, if the definition is really narrow, then you, your optimization protocol is going to include annuals. Like I said earlier, there's an enormous amount of vested interest in GMOs and herbicides and pesticides and water-soluble fertilizers. And so we just have to change the optimization pattern. Mm. And really that comes back down to what the average consumer actually wants to consume. It, it turns out that a lot of these annuals are just not really all that healthy for you anyways. Small amounts of them are fine, but... And, and I shouldn't say, like, I, I, I don't want to paint the picture that we shouldn't have annuals in our system. Like gardens, if, if more of us grew market gardens or gardens in our backyards, a lot of those plants are annuals. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's the place for annuals. Annuals need to be in the, on a smaller scale, closer to where they're going to be consumed. Perennials can kind of go kind of further afield. Perennials also including grasslands as well. So... We have to, we, we as consumers actually have to change our buying patterns. And so that's why I'm a big proponent in my ecosystem of people buying from local farmers, especially grass-fed proteins, because when you buy a grass-fed cow or grass-fed or, or pasture-raised pork or pasture poultry, um, you're actually, with your dollars, encouraging farmers to plant their fields back into grasslands which has that net carbon sequestrating effect, I guess. And there's a funny thing in if we use physics as a way of measuring what people should be eating in my ecosystem in northern Canada, a person living in Calgary can have a, a, a net positive environmental impact by eating 100% grass-fed beef by cattle farmers that are growing in a regenerative way as opposed to eating a vegan organic diet consisting of vegetables grown in California. And that's a really controversial thing to say, but if you look at it through the lens of physics, the inefficiency of the cow actually represents the efficiency of the farm. So when a, when a carrot comes out of a field in California, 100% of the nutrient that that carrot absorbed through its life is going to get shipped to Canada. Somebody eats it, they defecate into drinking water in a toilet, and that nutrient goes into our local river or stream and then down eventually to the ocean. Versus a cow, it might eat 100 kilograms of grass in a day. 90 kilograms of that grass is going to end up back on that farm. 90 liters out of the 100 liters it consumed will end up back on that farm. And it goes to enhance the nutrient cycle, encourage more plants, more photosynthesis, more carbon sequestration, and more biodiversity. And so we actually have to stop talking about these fad diets, keto, paleo, vegetarian, vegan, 
And we actually have to go right back to base principles and, and use physics to determine what our ecological diet is. And I can almost guarantee that if we choose a diet that is ecologically sustainable based in base principles and physics, it will be healthy for us as well. Because what's good for the planet ends up being good for the, the gander or for our population. And so depending on where you live on the planet will dictate what your bioregionally appropriate appropriate diet actually is. Right. I think there's always – people are always trying to answer the question of what is the most sustainable diet. But that, that answer really, really changes depending on the biodiversity that's readily available within our ecosystems. And for our conscious meat-eating listeners, do we know if grass-fed or pastured meat is necessarily regenerative, or can there be grass-fed meat that is still degrading to their soil ecosystems? Absolutely. So if you're living in Brazil and you're consisting off a grass-fed beef diet, you are responsible for the destruction of the Amazon rainforest, <laughs> period. Your sustainable diet in the Amazon does not consist of grass-fed beef. It consists of things like Brazil nuts and avocados. Like That's where vegans should live. And I'm not saying everybody should be vegan there. There, there are animal proteins available in that ecosystem that you can eat sustainably. But 90% of the nutrients in the Amazon exist in the canopy. And so in order to grow grass-fed beef, you've got to burn the forest down to plant grass. Grass will only succeed there for about three to four years because there's no nutrients left in the soil. And so this is why I say we have to eat bioregionally. When people start talking about how unethical it is to eat meat, I always refer back to the Inuit of the north who consisted pretty much 95, 97% of their diet was on animal-based proteins. They were not unethical humans. They were actually the indigenous people of this. A lot of them, a lot of the tribes in within North America were the most ethical when it came to the food choices that they made. And so if we look at them as an example, the Inuit or any of the other indigenous nations, they pretty much all ate a bioregionally available diet because they didn't have fossil fuel to, to allow their food to travel around the globe um, so that they could eat anything that they wanted on a whim. One thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is that a barrel of oil, which is about 50 gallons or just over 200 liters, represents close to 25,000 man hours of labor. So we have an enormous amount of energy at our disposal as humans, more than we've ever had, which allows us to be able to ship blueberries and avocados and mangoes and lemons and limes and whatever other thing we can imagine around the planet so that we can eat on a whim. And the reality is, is that, and this is one of these other liabilities, when we look at the embodied energy in our food, it turns out that every calorie of food we consume takes up to 20 kilocalories. So a food calorie is actually a kilocalorie. So every kilocalorie of food we consume takes 10 to 20 kilocalories of hydrocarbon to produce that food. In the 1940s, three kilocalories of food was produced for every kilocalorie of energy that went into that system. So just to kind of look at those two ratios again, 1940s was three out, one in. Currently, we're probably about 10 in and one out. Mm. Now, if we were all coyotes running around trying to harvest food and we had to put 10 of our own calories into hunting our food for every calorie we got out, we'd all starve. So our food system is so heavily covered like all of our food is heavily covered in fossil fuel when the fossil fuel does run out which could be 
anywhere from 10 to 200 years from now, it's really difficult to predict. That also equates to the same kind of outcome, which is starvation and famine. And so we really have to look at regeneration as the only real path forward. We have got to deal with our soil erosion. We've got to deal with our phosphorus cycle. We've got to deal with our nitrogen cycle. We have got to take the fossil fuel out of the food system and return back to a net positive caloric output if we're going to have a place on this planet in the future. So it sounds like for our protease, we need to go beyond asking if this is organic to seeing if this is regenerative. And even with our pastured meat, we also need to ask, you know, where did this come from? And did this potentially contribute to deforestation or was this in fact also raised regeneratively as well? We, we live in an age now where buyer has to beware. And if, if you are a conscientious eater, if you're conscientious about the environment, which you likely are if you're listening to this podcast, there's a lot of great options out there. And we're not talking about going back to hunter-gatherer societies. We're not talking about being necessarily like the Amish, although some would consider that a metric of success. Mm-hmm. We can live modern lives. It's very tasty. And in fact, one of the kind of premises behind the courses that we teach and, and what we practice, m- my wife and I, is that it's fine to talk about these problems, but if we're going to change the world, we actually have to make it taste better. It has to be more fun. It has to build community. It has to engage our our soul, and uh, it has to be a more enticing option than the alternative. And I would argue that when we start, when you start eating this way, when you start gathering in groups around conscientious people that are talking about these things and that are aware of them. Life gets a lot better. All of a sudden, you're not hiding in a closet thinking about these things. You're able to discuss them and talk about solutions and enact some of those solutions right outside your back door, whether that's in a, on an urban property or all the way up to the farm level. Mm. And um, I think it's a really exciting time to be in this field right now. The best time to make change is when the problems are the most acute. And so I think that the industry as a whole, permaculture and regenerative agriculture, and I've noticed you've You've interviewed a lot of regenerative agrarians. We are at the very cusp right now of a revolution. And I think there's an incredible opportunity for people who are listening to your podcast to jump onto that revolution right now. The best time to be on a surfboard and paddling is not when the wave is underneath you. It's right before. And mm. we're at that place right now in history where the smart people are getting onto their surfboards and they're starting to paddle because they're recognizing there's a tsunami coming. And instead of getting scared of it, they're just going to surf it. I know this may be opening up another can of worms, but I do want to touch on it because I found it to be very profound. But in an article that you wrote titled How a Resilient Home Addresses Global Risks, you say that today the average home acreage or farm is completely dependent on a network of grids to function to ensure we can meet basic needs, like having access to clean water, waste disposal, food, power, and transportation. To make matters worse, these individual grids are dependent on each other, making the whole system fragile. Water depends on power and power depends on water. Food depends on fossil fuels, fertilizer, and water. Waste disposal depends on water and power. You don't have to dig far to uncover the fragility that exists in these major grid systems to see most human settlements are sitting on a precipice of risk. 
end quote. That was from um, the article that you wrote that we'll link to in the show notes so our listener can learn more. But what do you see is this relationship between self-sufficiency and sustainability? And do you think it's necessary for each each of us to become self-sufficient, whether ourselves or within our communities, in order to achieve collective sustainability? I think it's really important that communities become more reliant on each other as opposed to being reliant on these faraway grids that are so fragile. Absolutely. I think self-sufficiency is a bit of a fool's errand in that it's it's very difficult to meet all of your needs on your own. But within a community of 10 to 100 people, you can create an incredible amount of resilience um, personally. And so that's one to think, thing to think about the solution to all the grids that we rely on, whether it's sewage, water, power, heat, those are all actually very simple liabilities to solve. So solar photovoltaics, for example, is a, a great technology. It lasts for 30 to 50 years. The panels are completely recyclable. They've never been cheaper than they are right now. And there's no moving parts. I mean, you can't ask for a better technology than that. And so if we get the design of our houses correct, we can actually, and this is actually, I'm building two houses right now that are going to be carbon zero. They're going to produce more power uh, than they need for both their heat and electricity requirements through photovoltaics. The materials that we've chosen have no red list chemicals in them. So there are no cancer causing chemicals. The materials that are red list free end up being less expensive. They end up being carbon sequestering. So they actually pull carbon out of the air. There's just all these good things. It's just like stacking one on top of the other. So if we get get our envelope right, our houses end up producing waste products. And waste is just an unused resource. And so the phosphorus, nitrogen, and water issues that we need so desperately to grow nutrient-dense food, if we get the right legislation that allows us to use things like gray water and composting toilets, we can perpetually grow most of our food if we've got the right envelope of land just by connecting our waste streams to systems that actually can turn those wastes into resources because waste is just an unused resource. And so now we've dealt with our heat, we've dealt with our power, we've dealt with carbon uh, within the environment by choosing the right building materials. There's enough biomass in the States as an example produced annually to also make the U.S. carbon zero overnight. So if we just turned our buildings into vegans, uh, so to speak, plant-based buildings, we could actually uh, sequester most of the carbon that the U.S. produces annually. And so we have all these amazing options at our disposal right now. And people are spending money every day to buy cars and houses and um, organic groceries. And I would say the biggest liability that we face right now is cultural sentiment and knowledge, ironically. And so one of the things that one of the other career paths that I heavily encourage my students to take on is to teach. Mm. I actually ask them to go out and I don't see it as competition. I see it as collaboration. But I one of my success metrics as an instructor is how many of my students go on to teach permaculture design, because Mm. there are literally millions and billions of people that need to just start working right outside their back door and making these decisions on a daily basis. And that's how we're going to change the course of humanity. So creating resilience within your own family and within your own community is the solution. And I I think one thing that I'll just leave on with regards to this point is it it doesn't have to cost more. And so one way that you can right now, you can increase the resilience and save yourself money in in the same breath 
is go buy yourself a year supply of food, put it in your basement, buy the right buckets to store it or freezer or whatever you need. And in doing so, you're going to end up cooking with more whole foods by buying bulk. You're going to save money. And in the event that we do end up having a global food shortage for a period of time, if every person had a year's supply of food in their basement, a global food shortage would not be a big deal. We'd be able to ride that out pretty easily. But as it is right now, most larders in homes have about three to four days of food. Most grocery stores have three to four days of food. There's this kind of just-in-time philosophy around food right now that exists in most of our grits, whether it's water, power, food. And um, <laughs> I think of our ancestors looked at how we currently live, which is just in time, they would be completely appalled at how fragile our society <laughs> has become. Well, with all of this in mind and to close, what are some of your easiest and simplest tips for us to get started either with permaculture design for ourselves, if we have gardens or balconies to work with, or to build more resilient communities around us? I think everybody that is interested in this realm should start by taking a permaculture design course. There's lots of great ones out there. Um, you just have to do a little bit of research. Probably the least expensive thing that you can do if you've got a little bit of land or a balcony is to start building some skills and growing food. Russia ended up collapsing uh, when it moved from the Soviet Union to what it is right now. And this is an interesting story that Dmitry Orlov, an author of um, Five Stages of Collapse, wrote. He was a Russian that went through that collapse. And he said when Russia was the Soviet Union, people were used to not getting shoes. They were used to not being paid. They were used to not getting food um, by the government because it was a communist state. But as a result of all the poor services that they didn't get or the, the lack of services they, they, they didn't get from the government, they were forced to work amongst each other as communities to develop solutions to it. And so one of those solutions was the Dasha which was a basically the peri-urban parts of the cities in Russia, people were, would be uh, able to garden one to two acres of land. And so while the Soviet Union was still in operation, 60 to 70 percent of the vegetables were coming from these dashes and 50 to 60 percent of the meat and milk was coming from these dashes. And so when the Soviet Union collapsed, people just kept going out to their dashes and producing food. It was almost like it was difficult to not have a government, but they still had food coming in. When the factories or when the government collapsed, people continued to go to the factories because they needed something to do. And they knew that their colleagues or their comrades needed shoes and cars. And so they were used to working without getting paid. And because they all lived in government housing, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the banks didn't come in and repossess all their houses. They had a house to live in. And they were used to figuring out how to get along with their neighbors, even if they didn't like them. And when you juxtapose that to North America, most of us have become specialized. We don't know how to grow food. We can't get along with our neighbors without a, a bylaw officer. <laughs> if we stop getting paid tomorrow, we would stop going to the factories that we work to, to build stuff. And if we stop paying, paying our mortgage payments, <laughs> we'd get kicked out of our houses. And so what we need to do is start getting together as a community, building our skills back up, learning how to garden, learning how to fix our own stuff, getting out of debt and start educating ourselves and becoming more of a society of generalists again, which is how the United States and Canada actually began. We were a group of, of um, people that came from Europe that could pretty much do anything because you had to in order to be 
to, to be able to live on the wild land that was here when we came here. And we actually have to build some of those skills back up again so that uh, in the event that something does happen that's bad, that we're prepared. And the thing is, is that this stuff can easily get communicated as prepping. And I, I don't see it that way because when you learn how to garden, when you learn how to fix your own stuff, if nothing bad happens, at worst, you're going to have better tasting food, you're going to spend less money, and you're going to have more time to spend with your family. And then in the worst case scenario, if something happens that's bad, you're going to have the skills to be able to work within your community to make it work well. And so wherever possible, we need to find these asymmetric options that benefit us in good times and also provide us with insurance policies, no different than life insurance or health insurance in the bad times. And people don't buy – if your friend was to go and buy any of these insurances, these common insurance, life insurance, mortgage insurance, we don't call them preppers. We just call them pragmatic. And so mm -hmm. we have to start thinking about these skills as – insurance policies and they're pragmatic things to do because we've become very complacent with the fact that these grids are seemingly so resilient and when in fact they're actually very fragile and we're hyper 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 dependent on them and one small thing could wipe most of them out very very quickly Towards the end of 2018, I made Green Dreamer planners printed on FSC certified paper with soy ink, featuring our major environmental awareness dates and motivational quotes from our past guests that also supported reforestation projects with the nonprofit Eden Projects. I was initially hesitant to make them again this year because after covering a host of unexpected costs from unfortunate things that happened last year, it ended up not making any sense for me financially, especially when I'm trying to fundraise to be able to keep this show going. But so many people have been asking me about it in the past few months, saying it really supported them this past year, they really hope that I can bring them back, that I started researching my options again to see how I can improve upon what I did last year and actually make it work out. So I'm in the process of working on a 2020 to 21 Green Dreamer planner right now. If you may be interested, please do sign up to Green Dreamer's Weekly Digest so I can keep you posted and so I can also gauge interest levels for me to keep doing this. And even with that aside, I'd love for you to subscribe for free to our Weekly Digest anyway, where we share solutions-driven positive news stories to keep us motivated and inspired every single week. To sign up, you can head to greendreamer.com slash subscribe. I hope to catch you in your inbox, but for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Probably one of the most profound books that I've ever read, written was uh, a book by a gentleman named Andrew Nikoforic called The Energy of Slaves. And it really brought to light how dependent we are on fossil fuel, which I think is really important when you're trying to make some of these decisions about how to become more resilient. Mm. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and motivated? So there's no point being a downer. <laughs> it's um, the uh, human brain has this interesting layer on the front end called the prefrontal cortex, and um, it only operates when you're in a good mood. Mm. And it's the layer of the brain that we need to solve these problems. It's the layer of the brain that we leverage when we're doing design. And so there's really no net benefit to being pessimistic or negative about it. And um, I find a lot of the stuff that I do, even though it deals directly with those liabilities, is a heck of a lot of fun. 
and I just focus on the fun. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? <laughs> I do a lot of research on health, actually. And so I've started hyperdosing on vitamin D and vitamin K. And I've had incredible repercussions on uh, sleep as well as overall circulation within my body. And that could be a whole other <laughs> conversation, <laughs> but it's been really beneficial. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for a healthier planet? Uh, everything I do in my career. So I design low energy, low carbon buildings. We design resilient homes, acreages and farms. And I've got a couple of those clients right now. And I educate students in permaculture design. And we have literally educated thousands of students through Verge Permaculture over the last decade. We just broke our 600th permaculture design graduate this year and uh, are, are going to continue to do that going forward. Mm, super exciting and congratulations on that. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? I like to look back at history when we've come to these types of inflection points. And the world just about ran out of whales right before we discovered fossil fuels. So if we had not discovered oil in the early 1900s, we would have no whales swimming in our oceans because a lot of our lighting oil and energy came from the consumption and rendering of whale fat. So fossil fuels aren't as bad as we all make them out to be. They were just the thing that we discovered at the time when we were about to run out of whales. And so I, I try and think about what's the thing that we're about to run out of right now. And it could be soil, it could be phosphorus, it could be water. That's the equivalent of the whale 100 years ago. And humans are very resilient and we're very intelligent and we're very adaptive. And um, things are nonlinear in our world. We tend to look at things through the lens of linearity when, in fact, they're very nonlinear. And so we could see a rapid transformation of our species any day now when we finally reach that tipping point where enough people know enough to be able to take action, which could be as simple as just starting a backyard garden or harvesting some rainwater. Mm. So we're going to make it. And I don't think there's any point in thinking otherwise, but that doesn't mean we become complacent about it. We all have to play our role. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, if you'd like to stay updated on Rob's work and learn more from him and his courses online, as well as his YouTube channel, you can head to vergepermaculture.ca for all the links that are there. And you can also follow them on Facebook at Verge Permaculture. Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to learn from you. Thank you so much for all you do and for this really thought-provoking conversation. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I think I said them a bit earlier, but I'll say them again. And that is that we really do have to make the future more enticing than uh, the status quo. And so we're not going to get people to change by spraying vinegar in their face. We've got to make it taste better and be more fun. And if we can do that, then people will naturally gravitate towards all of this stuff. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.